0: Well, here we are. We have made it to the crescendo of the story of Luke Uh, for the last 18 weeks. We've been in the book of Luke, anxiously um, awaiting the crescendo of the story. At least that's how Luke has been writing his book. Um, He's been writing down everything he can, trying to get it all in. And it's not that he thinks the end of the story is more important than the rest of the story, but he's very brilliantly writing in a way, by squeezing it all in, trying to get to the crescendo, uh, he's writing it that way as a way for us to feel the same excitement that he feels about the triumphal entry, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And so I hope you've been trying to, I hope you've been feeling some of that excitement, some of that anxiousness that Luke has been building up to. Um, And so... He constantly keeps the kingdom of God in the forefront as a way to build our excitement and expectation for the crescendo of the story, the triumphal entry, execution, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So here we are, we've arrived. And today we will read Luke's version of the the triumphal entry. And next week we'll look at the cross and so on. These four major events are essentially the Easter story. And so, Uh, We're getting into the end of Jesus's life and his ministry as a way to contextualize the beginning of his life as we move into Advent here in about now three weeks. So we'll be in Luke 19, 28 through 44 today. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that home. If you want to learn how to use a Bible, you can email me and we'll set up a time together. It's Luke 19, 28 through 44. We have a, a long passage today. And in your Bibles, uh, this text is split up into two sections. The first part is the triumphal entry, and the second part is probably called something like Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, something like that. Um For our purposes today, I think these two separate sections are better off squeezed into one thing uh, because they need to be read together because together they give us a better understanding of what's really going on. Now, normally we call this the triumphal entry, uh, but on the surface, there really isn't much triumphal about it. Uh, This is the paradox of the kingdom of God. We always expect Grandeur, uh, But time and time again, the kingdom of God shows up understated, uh, subverting our ideas about what is truly grand and what is truly triumphant. And so, <clears throat> in fact, with the way this text reads today, you'll be hard-pressed to call it uh, triumphal in the traditional sense. In many ways, Luke's version of this event is glorious, and it is joyful, but there's a shadow Over everything as well. Uh, We get a big, bold statement from Jesus uh, and we see joyful worship happening and we also get reasons to despair. Uh, Another contrast story in Luke, all about contrast. Uh, We get hit with the reality in this story of what we really want. I don't think I'm going to spoil anything by saying that The great sin of the world is that we choose ourselves over God's plan to reconcile the entire world back to him. And this text is just a small taste of that. Next week, it'll be even more evident. So calling this the triumphal entry is more tradition than anything. It is indeed triumphant, but it's also great sadness. And why is it sadness? Because we're beginning the end of Jesus's life. I think it's more appropriate for this event to be named. Uh, Eugene Peterson offered a, a name for it, and he's a man of respect. Eugene Peterson calls this event God's personal visit. So let's read our text today. I'll be reading from the NRSV. Uh, it is Luke nineteen twenty-eight through 44. <clears throat> After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the ground. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all, their, all the deeds and power that, had, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones themselves would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So one of the first things that you might notice uh, is that Luke's version of the story is a little different than maybe the one that you're used to. You might be saying, well, where are all the palm leaves? Isn't this the Palm Sunday text? (laughs) And uh, yeah, you'd be right. Uh, This is Usually, the Palm Sunday text, except Luke doesn't include palm branches. Uh, the story is recorded in all four gospels, but John is the only one that uses palm leaves because he has a, a theological point that he wants to get across. <clears throat> but all four gospels are communicating the same idea, and that idea is Jesus is in charge, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King. Of Israel, that everyone has been waiting for, and he's finally doing what everybody expected the Messiah to do. Even the 12 disciples fully expected Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and be pronounced the new king and establish his kingdom. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to go into Jerusalem, riding on a colt or a young donkey, same thing, being worshiped by the people, initiate a military takeover of the city, defeat Rome, kick them out of town, and finally undergo a coronation ceremony where he is finally pronounced King of Israel. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do. So you can imagine the excitement that the 12 disciples felt as they get closer to Jerusalem, they're standing on the Mount of Olives. It's about a mile east of the city. So they're overlooking the temple right now from where they're standing. And they're standing on the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem. And it's just before the biggest holiday of the year. And Jesus asks for a young donkey. A donkey seems like an odd choice for a king, but the prophets spoke about the coming ruler of God's people. And they said that he would ride on a donkey. The prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble, riding on a donkey. On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And the disciples know this passage. And Their whole lives, they've been longing for the Messiah to finally come to Israel and be king. And now Jesus is asking for a donkey so he can ride into Jerusalem. The excitement was almost unbearable. Jesus is finally going to be in charge of things. And it is exciting. Jesus is making one of the boldest claims that he's ever made. Just by riding into the city on a donkey, Jesus is telling the world that he is the one in charge. He is saying, Yes, I am the king of Israel. Yes, I am your Messiah. But his statement is actually even more bold than you can possibly imagine. Let me set the scene for you. This is during Passover. Okay? This is uh, the holiday where all the Jews flock to Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. It's part of this massive flock to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And what is the Passover? It's it's the holiday where the Hebrew people celebrate their freedom from slavery in Egypt. Okay? It's a week-long celebration. And so Jerusalem is filled with perhaps millions of people all celebrating a time in their history when they became free of their oppressors while being oppressed by the Romans in the current day. It's an intense week. Uh, The Romans know what they're celebrating and they feel the need to take extra precautions during Passover. Uh, They knew that if a revolt against Rome was going to happen, It was going to be during the Passover, when you have millions of people all celebrating their freedom for a whole week. One of those precautions is that Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, always came to town during Passover. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate lives in a town called Caesarea. It's the capital of Judea, actually. Uh, We would call it a 45 to an hour minute drive. It was more like a two-day journey on horseback for him. And this isn't his normal job. His normal job is to hear out civil cases, make judgments around Judea. That's his normal job. But he always comes to Jerusalem for Passover because his presence provides military stability as well as a message. He's the one in charge. Pilate has to enter Jerusalem too. And he does it big. He likes to flex his power, he likes to show the Jews who's the boss. And he was brutal at times in order to show his power and strength. Pilate once used the temple funds to build a new aqueduct in Jerusalem. We know this from Josephus. And we also know it because the aqueduct is still there. It's got his name on it. And so the Jews who protested this new aqueduct using temple funds, Pilate ordered his soldiers to beat them with clubs and trample them with horses until the crowds dispersed. That was only a few years before the triumphal entry, maybe four or five years. So this kind of, this kind of power flex was fresh on the people's minds as Jesus is making his way into uh, Jerusalem and as Pilate is making his way to Jerusalem. And Pilate flexes his power with how you would expect a Roman official to flex their power, by riding on a big war horse surrounded by a legion of soldiers, about 2,000 soldiers. It was a show of might and strength, like going to a military uh, parade. You know, it it shows everyone, look how powerful we are. Don't mess with us. That's what's happening. It's a show of strength. Pilate rides in on on a war horse surrounded by the biggest military he's got, And he rides into Jerusalem from the west. Jesus is coming in from the east. Pilate entering on one side. Jesus coming in on the other. One brings the war horse and the other brings the donkey of peace. And both are saying, I'm the one in charge. The bold statement Jesus is giving as he literally is being worshipped in the streets is not just that he's the one in charge but it's what he brings when he comes to become in charge. And that is peace. We know how Pilate chooses to be in charge. We know the ways of Rome. They occupy, they intimidate, they beat you down, they trample you, they steal your money, they claim what is yours, they use force, they misuse your funds. That is the way of Rome. Rome in the New Testament was all, And Babylon, too. You've probably heard the word Babylon. Babylon, Rome, these are symbols of sin because Rome is the worst of humanity. For all those things I just listed, it's the worst of people. And so, Rome is always a symbol of sin, and Jesus and the kingdom of God are the anti-Rome. Zechariah says that he comes triumphant and victorious, <clears throat> but also humble not on a war horse. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, Brian Zond, he wrote a book called Postcards from Babylon. And he says that as he's traveled around the world, and I've gotten to go to several countries too, and uh, every big city you go to, you always see one thing. Some dude on a horse. A statue of some dude on a horse. That's what Brian Zond says, some dude on a horse. You go, you go to uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, Right next to it, Charlemagne on a horse. There's even one in downtown Houston, Sam Houston, riding on a war horse. Why? Because we worship the way of Rome rather than the way of Jesus. This is the great sin of the world. We choose ourselves over peace. It's the disease of the human race. We prefer sin. We put... Monuments up to our own way rather than the way of Christ. We have a bent towards our own desire, towards our own sin, but Jesus comes to announce a new way of doing things, a new life for humanity, the way of peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. You may have heard that word before, shalom. It means peace, but it means something more than that. It means Something more like wholeness, completeness, prosperity, harmony, tranquility. And this is the great contrast that Luke is trying to show us through his whole book. There is the way of Rome and there is the way of Jesus. They are opposites. And Zechariah says Jesus is triumphant in his announcement In fact, the very next sentence in Zechariah 9, Zechariah says, He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. There's that word, shalom to the nations. Shalom is the culmination of the gospel story. The world being whole again, made right again, in harmony with God again, complete and tranquil again like it was in the garden so, so long ago. No more tears. No disease, no hate or racism or war, or no more mass killings, no more addictions, no more abandonment, homelessness, hungry families, no more hurricanes, no more freak accidents, no more schemes, no more Rome, no more sin. Complete, harmonious wholeness. This is the culmination of the gospel. It is more than just a way for you to deal with your personal sins and problems. It is the hope for the world. When Jesus made his personal visit to the world, when Jesus made his personal visit to you, those monuments to Rome that you have put up, even the little ones inside your heart, the Bible calls them idols, those begin to come down and shalom reigns supreme. this is the intention of Jesus as he sits on his borrowed donkey, riding boldly into Jerusalem as all creation is worshiping him in this moment. Joy to all people and peace on earth. It sounds really Christmassy for a reason. But Jesus also knows what's about to happen to him in just a few days. Like I said at the beginning, there's a shadow over everything that's happening. The triumphal entry doesn't really end on a high note. It ultimately ends in the execution of an innocent man. It ends in the murdering of God and our preference for Rome. Preferring sin. I hope that if you're, well, if you're hoping for an uplifting Uh, message this morning. I can give you one after service. I still love you, and I want you to be encouraged, but I do think that there's something to feeling the weight about what is about to happen to Jesus. On the one hand, you get triumph and joy and worship and the promise of peace, and on the other hand, Jesus suddenly starts to cry. Jesus suddenly starts to cry. He knows what's coming to him. He knows that our preference for the ways of Rome are far too great for him to become king the way that Caesar would do it, the way that Pilate would do it. If he did it the way that they did it, then Jesus would be worshiped just as another Caesar, just as another conqueror, just as another dude on a horse, but not as God. He gets close to the walls of Jerusalem and he begins to cry. He cries because no one can see what he brings. Not even the 12 disciples could see it. It was too radical for them to comprehend that violence is not a means to peace, but peace is the way. It was too radical for them to comprehend that Jesus cannot become king of Israel through the sin of violence because they have not seen anything different no one has seen anything different. When sin is all you know, you can't imagine what it would be like without it. This is on a big scale, also on a personal scale. When we start to think about what the world could look like when shalom reigns supreme, we start to categorize it as idealistic, or we start to categorize it as unrealistic or impractical. It is set aside for Christmas stuff. It's the kind of stuff that John Lennon sings about. When we start to think about what it could look like for us on a personal level, again, it's idealistic. It's unrealistic. It's impractical. We haven't seen any different. How could we imagine any different? How would you recognize it if it showed up? And this is why Jesus begins to cry. When God came for his personal visit, we didn't recognize it. When the kingdom of God showed up, we didn't understand it. We didn't recognize the things that make for peace because we've never known any different. Next week, we will see what our lust for the ways of Rome, our preference for our own ways actually does to us. It culminates in the first half of the most significant event in all of history. Jesus will be crowned king next week. We will look at his coronation ceremony, the day that Jesus subverted the way of Caesar by the way of peace. Much like our text today, it's a strong mix of sadness and triumph. Today we saw what our nature is. We saw what our bent is toward. We can't help but prefer sin because it's all we've ever really known. But next week, we will see how when Jesus becomes king of the world, he totally recreates the world and shows us what life could be like and to live a different way from the one that we've always known. So, let's pray. Lord. We uh, aren't ending on a high note today, not ending on a a clever one-liner to remember for the week, but Father, we put ourselves in the heaviness of what's about to happen to you as we follow the story. Father, we ask that you would help us contextualize this so that we can better understand what it meant when you actually came into the world, when you were born. Help us to know what all of it is for. Lord, we ask for peace, bring peace to the world. We ask that whenever we contribute to the ways of Rome, we ask that you would correct us and put us into the way of peace. When we prefer ourselves, help us to prefer you. We love you, and we ask for the grace to love you even more. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.